welcome to Rise to Offend, a podcast that explores people who rose to offend in society and their legacy today. I'm your host, Petr Speich, and this week we tell the story of Natural Born Killers, the most controversial film released by a major studio since Stanley Kubrick's A Clockwork Orange. The film established filmmaker Oliver Stone as a director drawn to controversy and willing to show an ugly side to the world in extreme fashion. Inspiring copycat crimes over 20 years after its release, it will also have a dark cloud of being a film with an evil legacy that will not go away. How concerned were you about the alleged series of copycat murders? The alleged is correct uh, terminology because no proof was ever had uh, of a connection. Uh, And even if there had been proof, uh, I don't think that any psychologist's uh, of value in the land would say that these anyone killed anybody as a result of coming out of a movie any more than you would coming out of a McDonald's uh, and eating a bad hamburger and shooting down uh, 14 people and saying it was because a McDonald's hamburger made me do it. No. The, uh, the condition was a pre-existing condition. It was a psychotic one. There was, in all the cases in this Natural Born Killers, uh, all the kids involved had juvenile, uh, juvenile problems drugs, often involving drugs and violence, bad parenting or alcohol. It was always a, a psychotic condition way before the movie existed. You know, if we start to get into this area of uh, looking to see, put blame on movies, uh, it will be the beginning of product liability suits. We would be suing Picasso uh, truly for fracturing your mind or Beethoven for irritating you. or you, know, you, could, you could take it down to its infinitesimal level. Every art form, every idea uh, would have a product liability. That was not the intention of natural born killers. The intention was to float an idea, was to float a portrait of a country in pain. And this week, joining me, as always, Brandon Guchon. The origin of natural born killers is forever tied to the script and the creator of the characters, and that is by Quentin Tarantino. The thing about like film geeks is um, they have an intense love for film. Incredible love for film, incredible passion. They devote a lot of time, they devote a lot of money, and they devote a lot of their life to the following of film. But they don't really have that much to show for all this devotion, other than a movie poster collection or a still collection. All right. The one thing that they do have to definitely show for it is they have their opinion. All right. They have a highly developed opinion. But what you find out fairly quickly in Hollywood is this is a community where hardly anybody trusts their own opinion. People want people to tell them what is good, what to like, what not to like. Now, here I come. All right, I'm a film geek. My opinion is everything. All right, you can all disagree with me. I don't care. All right, I know I'm right as far as I'm concerned. All right. Uh, and I'll argue anybody down. Now, Tarantino was born in Knoxville, Tennessee, and he did drop out of high school his junior year, and his love of film led him to move to Los Angeles. He got a job at a video store called Video Archives, and while working, he engulfed himself in studying and watching films constantly. This is one of the few places that Quentin could come as a regular guy and get a job and become like a star, because he was like the star of the store since... 
if you, well, if you need to start the store too. Well, yeah, but he didn't know as much as you did. So, like, Les knows a lot. He knows. Yeah. He knows. He knows uh, I know more about it. I know more about Italian exploitation films and TNA um, movies. <laughs> Chess Franco than Les. <laughs> a customer would come into the store and he could ask me maybe an obscure film, and I might be able to tell the year it was directed, uh, who directed it, and maybe who the leads were. And Quentin would go on to tell you who the supporting cast was, who the DP was, who wrote the screenplay, <laughs> and probably do a couple of scenes from the film <laughs> well, see, with the dialogue verbatim. You know, that's, well, uh, that's well, the difference between Quentin and I. Now, how important was this environment to be on the pulse of something new in his early 20s? Oh, when you're in your early 20s, you're just soaking in the world around you. Everything is still new. Everything is still exciting. You haven't been around on the planet for as long as, you know, somebody who's obviously much older than you. So you're still excited about certain things. And when you're at 20, no one can tell you that you don't know shit about the world. And you're going to have way more conviction than the average person. And also, I didn't really have to work for a living, all right? Uh, I mean, I did. I mean, we were working our butts off, all right? And working, like, you know, we're making minimum wage, all right? So... You know, we almost, in order to survive, or we almost you had to work, like, you know, double shifts, like three every week, you know, from opening to close, just to make enough money to live. But we were having a great time, you know. And, um, you know, some people think, oh, so that's where you learned your knowledge about movies. You know, I was already a movie expert. That's how I got hired at Video Archives, was because I was a movie expert. Everybody has, like, college years, they say it, where it's like you're discovering yourself, but you also have no responsibility. So you're engulfed in kind of, like, certain things. Mm-hmm that build your personality. Yes. You know, I had a whole group of friends that, you know, I didn't go to, you know, not only did I not go to college, I didn't go to high school, all right? You know, I, I quit school in the jun- in junior high. I never made it to high school. Now, the thing about it is funny is for all the knowledge most people go, you know, when you go to college, you get the most knowledgeable thing you get is the college experience, basically getting away from your parents, going somewhere that's away from where you are, and you know, the whole group of other peers that are away from where they are, and you make your connections and cliques and friends and all that kind of stuff. Now, you can skip college, but you probably won't skip the college experience. If you don't go to college, you'll find it somewhere else. And in that, it became video archives. It became a group of friends, and we all did all these things together. And it was like we were like in college together. I was just just working our way, you know, through the school, uh, 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 and it was, you know, it was it was a great time. We were always watching movies and and expanding on them, and and the store was completely like a, uh, uh, it was like a clubhouse, you know. It was like we owned it basically. We didn't own it. We weren't making any money there, but you know, um, we, you know, we're in our twenties. How much money do you need? All right. Um, but uh, uh, you know, we 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 were we were polite with the customers, but it was our store, not theirs. All right, and then we had complete access to the place. So we would like a, uh, 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 you know, as soon as we'd close and everything, you know, we lock the doors and have film festivals and watch movies and get drunk, get high, whatever we were doing, you know, you know, uh, and I get on like directorial retrospectives. We're like, okay, every night when we close up, we were going to show, you know, watch a new Jonathan Demme movie, you know, and I'd talk about it and set the stage for it and everything. And it was, you know, it was, it was a lot of fun. You know, it would be the kind of thing where it's like, if we were out partying or anything, and we had to be in at work at nine and everything, I, not everyone else did this, but I would do it, all right? I wouldn't go home. 
I would just go to the store, all right? So I would be there in the morning when I had to wake up, you know? So literally what I would do is I'd like, I, uh, um, and, you know, hygiene, especially in my 20s, wasn't really my strong <laughs> point. All right, uh, and so uh, uh, I would go to a, a video archives, like drunk on my ass, all right? And then like go into the porno section and then just fall asleep because it was like away from everything else. and like this blue light going on. So I'd just like fall asleep in the porno section on the floor there, wake up in the morning, <laughs> and then I'd be there at work, all right? So just you know, open up the door and here we go. Do you think that Tarantino being in this video store environment and living his youth and his college times and his years, his drinking and all that stuff with no responsibility had a huge play in him being able to have the viewpoint he has on film? Absolutely. I think when you work at a video store, much like a person I know in this room did the same exact thing. Uh, I know when you, when you are a filmmaker and when you are a, a, a script writer, you're all you're doing. You're just everywhere you look when you're in a video store. All you're doing is just seeing inspiration, and then you watch the movie, and then you get an idea of what that's about, and and then you go from there. That was the one thing that Tarantino always did is he always took these stories that we all knew oh so well that have been regurgitated time and time again, and he just kind of put this weird like Hollywood spin on things. And I think that's just as a result of just being around so many movies and then going, oh, I can't do that. They did this. I can't do that. They did this. Or I can do this. This hasn't been done in 30 years. So what is it? So you write true romance. So I write true romance and then tried for a long time to get it going. Couldn't get it going. Right. Then I wrote Natural Born Killers. Right. Tried for a long time to get that going. Couldn't get it going. Wasn't working in the video store anymore. I had some weird little odd jobs keeping going. When you going. say try to get it going, you'd mail it to studios? No, I was actually trying to like raise the money independently to shoot it ah. and stuff. I didn't right. think anyone wanted to buy it. and Nor, nor did anyone want to buy it. Because I Now, who were you <laughs> trying to raise money from? Did you know the money people? I didn't. Well, that was part of the problem. I, we didn't know anybody, but we were trying. And I, would, you know, <laughs> I think it takes a lot of imagination to look at your scripts mm -hmm. and say, "Hey, this would be a hit film because they're they're out mm -hmm. there, right?" Well, we, what ended up happening was, you know, I mean, True Romance could definitely show that I could write for sure. Mm -hmm. However, though, but you know. Movies have changed. True Romance, at the time when it came out, I'm not, not even the movie, but when the script, mm -hmm. everyone read it and thought, like, this is the wrong way to do it. He's taught, the, the dialogue scenes go on too long. There's too many cuss words. There's this, there's that. It seemed like I didn't know what I was doing because writing wasn't done that way in scripts. Right. You know, maybe David Mamet at the most, but that's it. Is it so, in other words, you broke the format in how you write a I couldn't. Play. I couldn't get past the readers at studios. Right. The minute people actually in the studios who read boring scripts all the time actually read my shit they were like this shit is awesome send it right to us but the readers would never let it get there because readers at studios are afraid to pass it on because mm -hmm. they look foolish if they exactly. if they if they pass on a real yeah they were they, they're actually like the 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 most strident group of out there as far as like everything has to be properly done. Tarantino started writing the script while at work. On the first script he, he wrote, it was called The Open Road. Now, he would rewrite that script into a, a movie that would be the first film that he would sell, and that movie was called True Romance. The reason that True Romance plays a big part in this is that the main characters of True Romance are Clarence and Alabama, and in the script... The character of Clarence, while traveling cross-country with Alabama to Los Angeles, was writing a screenplay, and that screenplay that Clarence was writing was Natural Born Killers. That whole video archives time 
even though it's not directly in the movie, it is in the movie. That time is captured perfectly in true romance. You know, it almost takes it to, you know, uh, like mythology or something. You know, I mean, I mean, not not for Joe Schmo on the street, but for definitely for the people who worked at video archives. <laughs> they can't watch the movie without, oh wow, you know, and just like it takes us all back. Because the things that Clarence says, they're the things that I and the rest of us said. You know, the conversations that he has or the conversations that we had. So the origin of the script was actually a film within a film. True Romance was a script he always planned to fund and make himself. He had issues getting money because the dialogue was overwritten by trained people. But Tarantino always said that when he wrote his dialogue that it was delivered in the style of the classic film His Girl Friday where it was read extremely fast and on cue. How do you like that? Everything happens to me. 365 days in a year, and this has to be the day. What's the matter, Walter? Sweeney. Dead? Uh, he might just as well be. The only man on the paper that can write, and he picks the day to have a baby. Well, he didn't do it on purpose, did he? I don't care whether he did or not. He's supposed to be covering the old Williams case. And where is he? Walking up and down in the hospital. Is there no sense of honor in this country? Oh, well, haven't you got anybody else? No. No, there's nobody else on the paper that can write. This will break me. Unless... Hildy. No. Oh, Kelly, you're gonna help me out of justice. Well, well, don't bother me. Get out of here. Don't be unbusy. No, I'm not. Please, stay. Look, don't bring us back together again. Just the way we used to be. Don't mock me. This is bigger than anything ever happened to us. Don't do it for me. Do it for the paper. Grandson, golly. Oh, well, in that case, erase it off. You go back to your old Saturday and like, how do you like that? I'm trying to backjack me. Well, I'm, I'm busy. Here. It's a ring. Take a good what? look at it. You know what? what it is? It's an engagement ring. Engagement ring? Uh-huh. I tried to tell you right away, but you would start reminiscing. I'm getting married, Walter, and I'm also getting as far away from the newspaper business as I can get. What? I am through. With no college education or high school, how much power does Quentin have if he sells a script to Hollywood of them not changing it completely? I, well, right now he has no power. I mean, every writer will tell you that, especially when you're starting out from the bottom. You have, you're, you know, you're some kid from uh, from the south, and you move to California. We've all heard that story a billion times. Yeah, get in the back of the line, kid. You know, but when it comes to creativity and stuff, obviously he he learned from all of his favorite directors, but he also knew how to apply his own spin. And I think when you read one of those scripts for the very first time, you are taken aback by how different the dialogue is and how different the interactions are between the characters. And if you walk into it with an open mind, which let's face it, nowadays especially, but uh, how many of these, you know, movie studios have an open mind? They just want to go with what's going to get them money. Give me another Transformers script, then we'll talk. You walked out of Natural Born Killers. You wrote Natural Born Killers, yeah, yeah, uh-huh. but you, you Oliver didn't Stone, like what he did with it. Oliver Stone directed it. Mm-hmm. Did you hate what Oliver Stone did with your movie? Well, I've never seen it from beginning to end. Why? Oh, well, because he rewrote the script and like this, you, you just can't do that to me. Uh, I got really you got upset. Off. Yeah, I got and you had no idea until you went to the screening of. Well, no, no, no. I knew. I knew. All right, I didn't go to a screening. The thing about it was, I said, I'm never going to see this damn thing. I'm not going to see it. And then I ended up. I was hanging out with Juliet Lewis, and we decided, let's go see it. Right. You know, and uh, I don't think I don't think she had seen it actually. So we just went to the movie theaters and paid to see it. And the reason you know about it is because. 
because we're watching the movie over 20 minutes into it. I'm getting pissed off. And she goes, let's just get the fuck out of here. In the early 90s, that was a time where independent film was rising. Mm-hmm. They had all these movements from new gay cinema to independent film. Like, we are not going to go through a major studio. It was this time in the early 70s that had that mantra. So the timing was very important for something to be different and edgy for someone like Tarantino to get in there. So, you know, they're, you know, they're artists. They're doing the things that you're doing. And it's, it's, a, it's a very interesting life to get to know different people and, yes. and hang out with them. And, you know, I mean, there's, you know, there's people that I really, really admire along the way that I've met because of my situation. By 1991, Tarantino revised and sold the script of True Romance. So he sold it to Warner Brothers after not being able to get the financing for him to make it himself. He wrote a film too grand for him to make. He started working on a script for a small budget film. He would be able to film himself. And that script would eventually be Reservoir Dogs. I think I put it in in, in, in the classic section. <laughs> you know, you know, in the auteur section is where Reservoir Dogs... No, no, no. Drama, drama. It would go, it would go in drama. In drama. But if it got accidentally placed in comedy, okay. <laughs> it should go in the may we suggest section. <laughs> is exactly where Reservoir Dogs should go. But in order for him to make Reservoir Dogs, he would have to sell another screenplay. And the script that he then started working on in full was Natural Born Killers. I think there were Natural Born, yes, I think there was an explosion. I think there was some kind of wrenching, some kind of breaking out of a shell of an egg. Uh, I feel terribly free and, and uh, relieved uh, and so catharsized or whatever you want to call Catharsis it. Catharsis from what? I, I, you know, I'm not a psychiatrist. I'm not. But you understand yourself. I mean, you have spoken well about with insight into what drives you. Sometimes you don't understand yourself, and sometimes uh, the ref- the reflections you get back from others help you. I think the New Yorker piece, which I don't see myself as that at all, but it's it, it it's instructive to me. It tells me the way he sees me, mm-hmm. and I listen. And what you say, I mean, I can understand my ex-wife's point of view. I can understand your point of view. My point of view is I didn't see love in, in this case as being redemption no, at I, the end, and that's a difference you and I have, and, I and it seems to me that, that, it's, uh, that there is a, more of an evil and violence that, that you, with your gifts, might have come to, you know, but that's a difference. Well, I dealt with violence. I, mean, I dealt horribly with violence on Platoon and Born on the Fourth of July. I no, showed what one bullet can do to a spinal cord and, Tom, and Ron Kovic's life, you know. I'm aware, very much so, of what violence does, and I think we must think about it when you have movies uh, as good as they are, action movies, Speed or True Lies. I mean, what ha- you, you go and violence is used, action is used as just a, a gimmick to get you adrenalized to you keep the project. You could those movies, could no, you? No, I can't. I, now yeah, I can't. Maybe I will. commercial films, but you in the past could not have done that. You had to be drawn to these kinds of subject matters. There are consequences to violence. If you're an honest person, you can't have somebody get shot without realizing. It's interesting, in Natural Born Killer, you could say that I didn't deal realistically with violence at all. I took it as a cartoon because yeah. I'm not interested in that anymore. I mean, I was in Born on the Fourth of July, but I'm saying, look, let's not deal with the victims. These kids kill 52 people. That's no yeah. joke. That's serious. Yeah, but you created in a car- cartoon atmosphere yeah. in order to accomplish what? To go to another level, to go to that satire level. Satire is distortion and exaggeration to make a point. So the script for Natural Born Killers as well was too grand and would need a big budget. Tarantino thought he could make the film for half a million dollars, but then came to terms realizing that the scope of the film was too big. And that's why Reservoir Dogs was on such a small scale. Being aware that he can't make the film for half a million dollars, he did sell the script to two producers for $10,000. And that $10,000 is what he would take to make Reservoir 
Reservoir Dogs. Natural Born Killers was a very uh, controversial movie, and it cost us in the sense that it was not. Warner Brothers uh, was shocked by the uh, reception to it, taken aback, and I think that they really didn't make that big effort. At the end of the day, they retreated, and the movie was cut by the uh, Motion Picture Ratings Association, 155 cuts, as I remember, to get an R rating, a, ra a restricted rating. So the movie is now finally, 15 years later, at my and I've been on the case, 15 years later, is being released in Blu-ray in August by Warner Brothers, with the, as the unrated version, thank God, which is to say my cut of the movie, which I really think is the right rhythm to the movie. But uh, at the time we were sued, the, all the media kept saying, uh, every time there was a murder practically, they said, well, I just saw Natural Born Killers. That was the reason I killed. It was like the Twinkie defense of uh, <laughs> Dan White in the milk uh, case. Frankly, it got silly, and we got John Grisham pulled us into a, a case where we were charged with accessory to murder in Louisiana. And believe it or not, much to our astonishment, the case dragged on for six years. So it cost Warner Brothers several million and myself a little bit of money. And we were charged. And as I say, it was finally bounced out after six years. But it, what a waste of paper and time and energy and debilitating. True Romance wasn't a box office hit. However, Reservoir Dogs, the film that was released earlier that he wrote and directed, was garnering a lot of attention. Now, he recouped a lot of money and video sales for True Romance, and it became a cult classic, but Tarantino's dialogue and what people called gutter poetry shined to many filmmakers as something fresh and new. We live in an interesting time, but you know what? It reminds me of the first grade, man. It just takes me all back to the first grade. I remember, I remember the assholes who would gossip on other people and tattletale. I remember the people who'd go to the teacher on you. I remember the people who didn't talk. And I, it was a certain breakdown of society right in that first grade room. There's certain people who do this, this, and I bet you these people who love to gossip are the people on the internet and uh, TV who do this blah, 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 all day long. The director behind True Romance was a filmmaker named Tony Scott, and he was a very stylized action director. He did films that people might know as Crimson Tide and a lot of Denzel Washington films uh, throughout his career. So Tony Scott was an action director, but he showed that Tarantino's dialogue gave an action movie a truly original element. How important was the mixture of Tony Scott leaving the overwritten dialogue in True Romance and capturing that with the action for Tarantino selling another script despite the film being a box office failure? I'm trying to remember a scene from True Romance. I don't remember any of the action scenes, really. You know what I do remember? I remember Gary Oldman in that, in that, in that dialogue. I remember... Uh, Dennis Hopper and Christopher Dennis Walken. Dennis Christopher Walken, exactly. I mean, uh, you know, or, or Sam Jackson, that part was like, I'll eat the boozy, I'll eat the butt, I'll eat whatever. I know you know where they are, so tell me. Before I do some damage, you won't walk away from Could I uh, <clears throat> have one of those Chesterfields now? You got a match? Oh, wait, no, no, I don't bother. I got You're Sicilian, huh? Sicilian. <laughs> 
You know, I read a lot, especially about things, about history. I find that shit fascinating. Here's a fact, I don't know whether you know or not. Well, Sicilians were spawned by niggas. It's a fact, yeah. You see, uh, Sicilians have uh, black blood pumping through their hearts. And, and no, if you, if, you, if you don't believe me, uh, you can look it up. Hundreds and hundreds of years ago, uh, you see, um, the Moors conquered Sicily. And the Moors are niggers. So you see, way back then, uh, Sicilians were like uh, wops from northern Italy. Um, they all had blonde hair and blue eyes. But, uh, well, then the Moors moved in there and, uh, well, they changed the whole country. They did so much fucking with Sicilian women, huh? That they changed the whole bloodline forever. That's why blonde hair and blue eyes became black hair and dark skin. You know, it's absolutely Amazing to me to think that to this day, hundreds of years later, that uh, that Sicilians still carry that nigger gene. Now this, <laughs> no, I'm, no, I'm quoting history. It's written. It's a fact. It's written. I love this guy. No, guy. No. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Your ancestors are niggers. Uh -huh. <laughs> hey. <laughs> yeah. And, and your great, 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 great grandmother fucked a nigger. Oh, yeah. And she had a half nigger kid. Now, if that's a fact, tell me, am I lying? You, your part, eggplant. <laughs> no. <laughs> hey, hey, hey! <laughs> You're a cantaloupe. <laughs> no. <laughs> Beautiful. <laughs> <laughs> I haven't killed anybody since nineteen eighty four. Those parts, what made that movie so great, the action, look, that's a dime a dozen. A guy gets shot in the chest or somebody gets shot in the head, okay, but 
how how what made that movie so good and what makes a lot of Tarantino movies good is because when you listen to how those guys talk that gutter poetry if you will who doesn't relate to that that's you and your friends that's you and your friends hanging out yes and that's something we're going to get to the style the hanging out style of Quentin Tarantino's scripts is that something that uh, a lot of people would get to know at this point he does get natural born killers goes over to Warner Brothers and filmmaker Oliver Stone is interested in doing this project you see, I, 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 I don't ascribe to the, the media aspect of the 60s being this defined era. It was, it, it, it's about our generation in the sense that we were born in the 40s, and it's a process that's been ongoing. So the 60s just melted in the 70s, the 70s, and the 80s, and now into the 90s. But we're, we're accumulating, we're absorbing all that information still, and we're, we're reflecting back now some of our 60s values. They, they didn't disappear. There was no dramatic bombing of an airport that ended the 60s you can you know i I don't ascribe to altamont being the end of the 60s because there was some fighting and ugliness and people were taking too many drugs and there's no question that you know abuse and self-indulgence did set in but that 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 didn't make drugs bad drugs were if i you know people forget in this simplistic times that drugs were there to expand our minds and we took them to expand our minds and in many cases it worked our minds did get a little better uh, we started something, we questioned things, and we must never say that it was a loss or a failure or that it stopped. I see it as an ongoing phenomena. Uh, I would not be the person I am if I hadn't been for the 60s. Uh, and I'm still using that information in the 90s. Uh, and I hope, among other things, not only to celebrate the 60s with this movie, but to pass on, like DNA, some of that information to the kids that are growing up in the 90s. They should have it. It was a good time. It was a time when we were not scared. It was a time when we believed in the possibility of all things. We believed in love as a concept. We believed in experiencing all of life. In 1992, when the script is sold, Oliver Stone flashback one year. By 1991, he won two Academy Awards. He won the first one for his film Platoon, and the second one for the film Born on the Fourth of July. He won Best Director Academy Awards. And he started in Hollywood just like Quentin Tarantino as a screenwriter. He wrote the screenplays for violent films like Year of the Dragon, which starred Mickey Rourke, and the much more famous one, Scarface, which was a film with Brian De Palma. So he was aware of being a screenwriter that had to deal with a director like Brian De Palma who had a, a, an established career and would do what he wanted with the script. And, uh, that innocence is, is wonderful and should be always be there. It should not just disappear with age and we mustn't become world weary. We, we become tired as we get older. We become more jaded. Yes, that's a part of life too. But threaded in there, it should be this. Politically, we must get smart. We must evolve towards a planetary consciousness with the environment, etc. On the other hand, I have this perennial fear of the old Jane Goodall theory about the apes, you know, that the old alpha ape is up there in us, somewhere in our brain. This dinosaur brain keeps emerging, uh, and we need enemies. We need enemies. And if we don't have one, we invent one. Certainly the Oliver Norse of this world do that, and so do many of the people in politics, the people who have the power. And uh, that's a war that's going on, going to go on for into the turn of the new century, and my kid's going to face that war. Is America going to become a third world policeman? Are we going to be intervening in numerous border wars, trying to protect our ideology from perceived threats? 
or are we going to become more like a Japan, Switzerland, or Sweden, or a European country that through its past experiences of suffering and pain and wisdom will, will accept other ideologies, accept other ways of life, and go on about its business, which I've always think America has a good business, it's business. We're good at it. We're not great warriors. We're good businessmen, so I think America should do that. Also, his films at this stage, after he did, in 1991, he did a biography of The Doors. I'm the Lizard King! I can do anything! Jim Morrison, the god of rock. And also in 1981, he did a film called JFK. These are people who cannot afford to send money, but do. These are the ones who drive the cabs, who nurse in the hospitals, who see their kids go to Vietnam. Why? Because they care. Because they want to know the truth. Because they want the country back. Because it still belongs to us. As long as the people have the guts to fight for what they believe in. The truth is the most important value we have, because if the truth does not endure, if the government murders truth, if, it, if we cannot respect the hearts of these people, then this is not the country in which I was born in, and it's certainly not the country that I want to die in. Tennyson wrote, authority forgets a dying king. This was never more true than for John F. Kennedy, whose murder was probably one of the most terrible moments in the history of our country. You, the people, the jury system sitting in judgment on Clay Shaw, represent the hope of humanity against government power in discharging your duty and bringing the first conviction in this house of cards against Clay Shaw. That's not what your country can do for you, but what you can do for your country. Do not forget your dying king. Show this world that this is still a government of the people, for the people, and by the people. Nothing as long as you live will ever be more important. His style became a mosaic style of different edits, different cuts, different colors, which did go against completely the hanging out style of writing that Quentin Tarantino did. So if you're Quentin Tarantino in 1992 and Oliver Stone is buying your script to make a film, what emotions would you have? I think he knows that if Oliver Stone, a guy who just won two Academy Awards for being the best director, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, This guy wants to buy my script. You're thinking to yourself, there's got to be a moment of elation because you're like, okay, I'm on the map. But then at the same time, a sense of dread has to come over you, knowing good and damn well that the script you wrote is not the movie that's going to be made. And he sold the script, like we said, in 1992 to finance his film Reservoir Dogs. So at the time, Tarantino did not make the film. So Tarantino sold the script for in 1992 for $10,000. And with that money, he financed Reservoir Dogs. But immediately he butt heads with Stone because the vision was different. Stone was drawn to the script because of the comment on the media and saw an opportunity to exploit this. What a lot of people found unacceptable was that Mickey and Mallory, your leading protagonists, escaped justice. Did that concern you? Well, uh, don't give away the ending, but it certainly 
to me, uh, paralleled the, uh, the concept of the 90s where things were changing, values were shifting, were becoming more and more superficial, and that people, it doesn't matter. There's no morality involved. There's no, you got to get the criminals in the end. That might be true for Bonnie and Clyde days or in the 60s and the 70s, but now uh, it's all jello and anyone gets away with it. As the Menendez brothers did, OJ did, uh, and so forth and so on. Everyone gets away with it. That's the 90s. Right. I can only reflect it. That's all that the movie intended to do. It was a painting of that time. Don't include me in the frame. I, I'm just a signature on the back. In other words, you will look back on the film now, 1997, which is four or five years later. You can look back at it in 2050 or 2030 and just look at the painting of, of that time and it's grotesque. Like Graz was grotesque or like your Hogarth. Hogarth was all those ugly faces, drunk. drunk. Mm. That was a very satiric picture. Uh, Swift was satiric and very cold and misanthropic about it too. That's the nature of satire. So there's love in the movie, but it's a different, it's the Mickey and Mallory love affair, which some people can't stand and some people love, but it's about a very misanthropic picture of America with the prison system, the law system, and the media system being more oppressive than any murderer could be. Tarantino wrote the script with the lead character and story around a character in the media, the character of Wayne Gale, a news journalist. So at this stage, although they had different looks, they were telling the same story. But in 1992, after Reservoir Dogs and all the hype behind that, Tarantino did get a much bigger ego than he did prior to selling the script. And then also in 1992, at that time in America, the media was hyper-focused on stories for profit. Something shunned by news and real journalists at the time. But adding profit to stories eventually took over the media landscape in a large way by this time in America. Okay, anything else? The other part would be the cannibalism. That is also a very bizarre delusion in that actually storing and, and packaging parts of these uh, poor individuals that that they were going to become part of him. Now what you said... Literally and, and figuratively. Literally and figuratively. Yes. There isn't anything absolutely unique about Mr. Dahmer's sexual desire except that the object of it was an unconscious man. What well, was a dead man? Which did he say he preferred? Live or dead? He said that he preferred having sex with the insides of the bodies. Which that was a 10 out of 10. That's what he told me. Did he tell you whether he preferred live men? He did not. What did he say he preferred? The sex with the inside of the body? Yes. And what was the second choice? There was, there was a, a tie with a dead body sex, other types of sex with a dead body or an unconscious body. The O.J. Simpson murder case. If I put this knit cap on, who am I? I'm still Johnny Cochran with a knit cap. And if you look at O.J. Simpson over there, and he has a rather large head, O.J. Simpson in a knit cap from two blocks away is still O.J. Simpson. It's no disguise. It's no disguise. It makes no sense. It doesn't fit. If it doesn't fit, you must acquit. The Joey Buttafuoco and Amy Fisher murder case. The prosecution argued Amy is a danger to the community. Assistant District Attorney Fred Klein also says shooting victim Mary Jo Buttafuoco is fearful that Amy might try to kill her again. 
Klein says Amy was a call girl for a prostitution ring. Last night, a current affair aired a tape allegedly of Amy Fisher in her role as a prostitute. Today, Amy's attorney says it was her married lover, Joseph Buttafuoco, who acted as her pimp. What role do you think Buttafuoco played in leading Amy Fisher into being a prostitute? Mr. Buttafuoco leads Amy Fisher into everything. And that's why she's in this state right now, because of Buttafuoco and not her own actions? Uh, That's right. Yes, sir. That's right. The Melendez brothers killing their parents. And we're ready to resume. So while the state has argued the brothers planned their parents' murders, the defense argues a series of bizarre events took place a few days before the shootings that explain everything. It's the crux of their case. Both brothers describe those events as they testify. Now, on Tuesday, what else do you remember besides not being able to practice tennis in the morning? A fight between my mother and my brother. When you say fight, you mean a physical altercation? No, I just mean an argument. At some point, uh, she was moving toward me, and I kind of put my arms up because she flails with her fists sort of wildly, and she reached and she grabbed my hairpiece, and she just uh, ripped it off. She was yelling and she was saying, you don't need it, I don't care, I don't, I don't care what you want, you're not having it. And Lyle was right behind her saying, please, please, I need it, it's not that big a deal, I, it, it's important to me. And I knew he had something done to his hair, but I didn't know what, and, and uh, it, within a moment I realized that it was a hairpiece, but I just couldn't believe it. The Tanya Harding, Nancy Kerrigan fiasco, and then of course the Rodney King trial and tape. So... Stories for Profit ran the news culture in America at the time. This type of evolution refocused Oliver Stone's vision of the original project, which touched base on this. And he has always at this stage focused on social commentary in his films, and that kept him passionate. It depends, uh, you know, if you take this literally, you might be upset. I think the film was intended satirically. I think the the landscape that was just, you know... (laughs) When we started it a year and a half ago, it, it, this seemed very surreal, but it sort of happened as we were shooting. Uh, Beavis and Butthead were right. This came true. I mean, everything. A woman cut off a man's penis and was publicized for it and acquitted. Two boys uh, killed their parents in cold blood and admitted it and got away with it based on a child abuse. O.J., we have a figure skater that beat up another figure skater and made you know national ratings. And I mean, everything seemed to come out into a public display of the private. Everything private was suddenly aired into a soap opera fashion that was fascinating and, and changed the nature of watching and listening and, in fact, a culture of surveillance, I mean, culture of gossip. Uh, and I think that is what our film was dealing with. And it, it just, I mean, what we shot became real as we were shooting it. It began as satire and became yes, what? Yes, and became, I guess, more real less surreal. And uh, to be honest, I think the Mickey Mallory story, uh, which we've described, could happen uh, any day now. It could happen, uh, and it would happen. These kids would be all over the newspapers, People Magazine, they'd be the, the heroes for a couple of weeks, and I think that they would vanish. I think people would get bored with them, like the way they get bored with any story, and they'd move on to the next case, as is done in the film, as is shown in the film. So I think it's a pretty bizarre place we're living in, the 1990s, and I think... Uh, it's a century of violence. It's coming to a, coming to a conclusion. 
it's yeah. coming to a conclusion? Yeah, a conclusion. And, and what kind of conclusion is it coming to? I think something's going to, you know, it's either going to reach absurdly new proportions or else it's going to die out and people are going to get, you know, sick and tired of this whole thing and hopefully we'll move on into uh, more sanity in our, in, in, in public, in our television, in our public behavior. There will be less emphasis on the private, less surveillance. I don't know. You know, you call a sh you see more more of these people than I do, but you live in this world. I don't. Mm. Uh, the world of what? I can I can go off and make another movie about another subject, but I think you live in this culture of surveillance. I mean, yeah. you live in gossip. You you know what people's. What do you think? Why do you think Oliver Stone chose to do this film? Was it because he knew he can garner controversy, or is it he, as a filmmaker, was just attracted to this project? I definitely think. He's attracted to the project because, you know, a Tarantino script is unlike the scripts that were probably coming across his desk. They weren't so, you know, conversational as, as what Tarantino was known for. So when you see that, you're like, wow, these are characters that I can revolve around. But at the end, something must have happened along the way for him to make it the way he made it. But obviously, all the things that were in the news, I mean, just like now, I mean, what, what was going on in the 90s, now it's on steroids, mm -hmm. what is going on, all the clickbait and everything. We didn't have clickbait back in the 90s because nobody was, really, nobody was using the internet at that time. I came back to a situation where my generation, the kids I knew, were all prospering. Because Johnson, you know, in that war period, the inflation took, took this country like a steamroller and just shot up the value of the dollar. I mean, what a dollar could buy in 65 and what it could buy in 68 was tremendously different. And uh, inflation was raging. People were making money. My friends were doing well. Uh, I came back to a situation where uh, I was not encountering hostility to my involvement over there. I was encountering complete indifference. It was like, oh, you were over there? For, you dropped out for a year to go over there? What a waste of time. It's too bad. You know, welcome back. Let's get on with your life. But you can't just come back and get back into that beat. You know, you're, you're off a beat when you come back from war. You're off a beat. And you, you just don't look at people the same way. You don't relate to them the same way. You, you don't have friends. You don't have friends. And you don't, and you don't trust your family because your family doesn't get it. My dad didn't, never got Vietnam. He thought it was a police action. I remember he told me. I'd been wounded twice, and he said, well, that's not really a war like my, the war I was in. And he said, it was a police action, which hurt me. Well, you don't trust anybody. And then eventually you get to the point where you don't trust your government anymore. The Pentagon Papers came out. What it, what it was disgusting what was in those papers. The whole uh, Johnson fabricated the whole Vietnam War with the Tonkin Gulf Resolution. They stampeded the Senate and the House into, into a war that was never declared. He sends half the country to fight it. He lets the rich go. It's a completely insane way. It's, it, it, you're dividing the country. You're putting civil war on the other country. It's, he did what Lincoln did 100 years before, but he did it for the wrong reasons. Johnson made a civil war in this country. Uh, given all those factors, it took me, I'm amazed it took me so long to realize well, what the hell was going on. I guess I'm stupider or slower or later, or later developer than the rest. But I guess it took me to about 1971 to, to kind of say, hey, something is very wrong. The government is telling a lie. The government is a lie. Never trust your government again, blindly. 
No, news for profit wasn't was something that occurred, but it wasn't everything. Yeah, yeah, it wasn't everything. Now it's everything. Now it's everything because Correct. because you didn't have twenty four. You had twenty four seven news channels, but you didn't have twenty four seven news because you didn't have the internet. You yeah. couldn't check it. You couldn't get what you wanted when you wanted it. So when you were living in a world where you know obviously the, the media is just on top of you, you're fully aware of of all these things that are happening in the news, all these scandals that are going on, and then you're seeing exactly what the media is doing. You know, and you're seeing how the media is um, portraying, villains. portraying villains and you're seeing how how those portrayals are manipulating society. And you're seeing now all of a sudden you're seeing these people cheer for the villains because Celebrities. yeah, exactly. They put them now all of a sudden, you know, uh, Charles Manson is James Dean, you know, and I think that's what he was going for. None of us should feel ourselves superior to another person for having committed a crime because in us is the, is the ability to commit that same crime. We are united, we're linked. I go back to that original theme I raised earlier, that we must have the humility to understand our brother or sister. In the murderer goes I, the kid that, the, the, the little black kid that kills somebody in the park tomorrow and, you know, kills a nice, respectable person. You hate that kid, right? I mean, you, you want to kill him for what he did. You want to throw him away in jail. You want somebody... But, you know, he has a reason, and you've got to go back through his life and his pain and his suffering, and you begin to understand. And, and uh, Here's what you said about O.J. Simpson as well. It's difficult, you said, thinking about him. I just think there, but for the grace of God, go out. Sure. Uh, sure, don't you? I mean, haven't you felt feelings of violence at all in your life? I mean, don't they come out? Haven't you had fights with people? Haven't you had aggressive feelings, or are you, are you sublimated to... Are you pinstriped away? Or no, do you feel neither. <laughs> no, neither one? You, have you no, don't score points either for trying to take I those kind of shots. I think aggression, I mean, it's in all my movies. When he bought the script, Oliver Stone, his next project was already in the works. And that was to finish off his trilogy, his Vietnam film trilogy. The first one being Platoon. The second one, Born on the Fourth of July. And the third one was a film called Heaven and Earth. Now, Heaven and Earth was an exhaustive filmmaking process for Oliver Stone. He left completely exhausted. He felt like he failed in a lot of ways of telling that story. And the film actually failed box office wise it was a 33 million dollar budget and only made about five million in the box office the critics lambasted it and then after that oliver stone refocused to natural born killers when i made the movie in 1992 it was a time when the american landscape was littered with uh, sensationalism uh, the television uh, industry was uh, making a fortune off the, uh, the crimes of the Menendez brothers and O.J. Simpson and Loretta Bobbitt and uh, uh, Joey Budafaco and the two ice skaters who pushed each other. There was a continuing sort of string of meaningless crimes that had captured the public popular attention because why? Mostly because the networks had sort of shoved it in front of them and kept on repeating it and repeating it until it became a mantra in their minds and it became the news the news for profit. Mm. It was a strange uh, culture, uh, one given to the celebration of aggressiveness in all its forms, not just murder, selling, uh, ratings points, uh, competitiveness. It became, it was the fashion. It was the fashion, it still is. But more so, I think, in the early 90s. So I think I vomited up what I saw. And I think I did it in film form, with the film sort of aping aping the, uh, the landscape that I saw, like a mirror. 
an outsized, grotesque, funhouse mirror, exaggerated. And Oliver Stone also wanted to do the project because he thought it would be an easy project. He didn't want to have to go through the same thing he went through on Heaven and Earth and then it not to pay out for him. He saw the film as an action movie and wanted to create that pace and absurd world of an action movie. Tarantino's script, again, not an action movie. Hanging out script, slow build of dialogue. Well, I think, you know, I, I, I think I tend to reflect what's around me. I mean, I'm sort of a bit of a circus mirror. I walk around and... In this case, I was really trying to have some fun. I was trying to relax. I'd done a very tough film in Thailand called Heaven and Earth. Right. True story, uh, classical narrative. And here was a chance to sort of take a look at the road movie genre, and the prison genre, which I loved. The yeah. Papillon, yeah. Great Escape, the Midnight Express, road movies. And combine the two and sort of you know, stretch, do a little bit of American muscle car kind of movie and not be too serious. And inside the genre, play around with the format technique, try different mixed media. We tried Super Super 8, we tried uh, video, uh, 35 millimeter, we did animation, we did rear a lot of rear projection. But we were really playing around with having fun, relaxing. But as it developed, you know, and we were in these prison in Stateville, Illinois, and all these things were happening on television, it just became a situation that became more real, in a sense like the Wall Street movie, because we were, it was inevitable what would happen at the crash, but when we were doing the movie, Gordon Gecko, all that, by the time we released the film, all of a sudden the crash happened. I mean, and people were saying, like, this is a prophetic uh, picture, it's a social realism. But, you know, that happens if you explore a cause and effect. If you just go out and you try to be honest and you sort of film what's being done in our society, you go to these prisons, you see the amount of, you know, subclasses in prisons, you see me mass media building up, you see a mass prison system building up. This new crime bill, if it gets through, is about building more prisons, throwing, a lot of other throwing away the yeah. key, putting the prisoners in. Mm -hmm. Uh, the cop, the police in the movie are corrupt. I mean, it's a satire. So all these forces are, 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 you know, they're pictured broadly. We're not saying that all cops are corrupt or all media is corrupt or all uh, prisons are corrupt. But we are, in this movie, they are. Uh, you know, we're creating this sort of three-headed monster, pillars of the establishment. Uh, the establishment is corrupt. And we, we're positing these two anti-heroes who kill people, who in a sense emerge as purer phenomenon. Than the, than the corrupt uh, forces of the establishment, which is a very subversive statement, leading, as you know, at the end of the picture to, to basically a revolution. Was Oliver Stone's failure to have a good experience with Heaven and Earth, his previous film, motivate a certain attitude of being less critical on his choices with this new film, Natural Born Killers? I think when you're a filmmaker or an artist in general, I think you're damned if you do, damned if you don't, no matter what. Eventually, you have to take on some projects that when you initially got into the game, you know, you know how artists, they like to hold on to that, uh, you know, that artistic integrity, you know, and then after a while, look, you, you see where artistic integrity gets you. It doesn't make you feel any better. It doesn't make you feel any worse. It's just something that you feel like you have to have. And in this situation, he's like, oh, this is an easy movie I, I can make. There's going to be guns. There's going to be some explosions. There's going to be some cool dialogue, a story that the people can get behind. And on top of that, it kind of shines a light on what's going on in society. It's an easy it's an easy choice at this point. And on top of that, too, it's not part of that Vietnam trilogy. He's doing something different now. Society has to be fixed from the ground up. It has to be improved in the cradle with education, with family relationships. Otherwise, it's, if you remember in the movie, we show very clearly a, a generational violence that's passed down from father, from Rodney Dangerfield to Juliette Lewis, yes, from Mickey's father to... to uh, but it's not. It doesn't. It's just not about that. It's also about. It, there's a scene in a motel where they're making love, and 
uh, on the television you see violent movies and then you see and over in, the corner is a woman tied up who they've yeah, brought don't, kidnapped don't give, away to too, don't give away too much insects eating each other and then outside the window while they're making love and talking mainly you see images of the entire 20th century going by Stalin and Hitler and Armenia and, and uh, ecological devastation and, the point is that you know these two kids are the product of flower the corrupt fruit of, uh, of the 20th century, which has probably been the most violent century in the history of mankind. Genocidal, faceless murder of millions and millions. And, you know, in a sense, uh, we're all trapped in this century. Now, the film has three main characters that are focused on in Quentin Tarantino's script and Oliver Stone's version. The main characters are there is a serial killer couple named Mickey and Mallory Knox. You know, I have my relationship to the movie as, a, as an actress, but what I got after the fact is, is it was really Oliver's big fuck you to, to mainstream media. I mean, he definitely imparted that to me because when we were doing press, he... He wanted us to really harp on that. The way the media reacted to the film, I would I couldn't believe it. Because me and Woody, we'd do interviews, and we were, you know, subject to this such venom hostility. And I had to go, oh, I think uh, Oliver <laughs> made a point here. And an Australian journalist who sensationalizes crime for profit named Wayne Gale. Tarantino's script, the main character, as we mentioned, was journalist Wayne Gale, and it focused on his journey sensationalizing killer couples. Tarantino based Mickey and Mallory on real-life spree killer Charles Starkweather and his 14-year-old girlfriend Carly Ann Fugue. This couple killed 11 people between January 21st, 1958 and January 28th, 1958. The media of the early 90s would have made them celebrities, and it was the essence of the Tarantino script. Satires are only effective if people realize it's a satire, you know, if they don't. And then they just go crazy and start uh, getting angry with what you did. Stone rewrote the script with the focal point on the killers themselves. The focal point was Mickey and Mallory Knox. And he made them and their story based on love. And the love story was the main storyline. But he kept about 90% of the dialogue. Now, Tarantino took his name off the script and only got credited for the story and released the original screenplay later and released the original screenplay later on Grove Press Books. So Oliver Stone has now taken over the script in its entirety. The idea at the time was we were anti-establishment. Tear it all down, man. This thing is going south. I mean, the criminal justice system, the, the legal system, the law, the media, they're all nuts. Everyone is nuts. The media was terrible back in the early 90s. It was disgusting. When I was a kid, you'd have to put news that was not non-profit. You would do news for news' sake. You'd do the best you could, but it was a sacred division. And around the early 80s, Larry Tish over at CBS decided, hey, I think news should be for profit. And that changed everything. Now, casting the film was the next step, and Oliver Stone cast the film with names but no stars. His choice in casting the lead character of Mickey Knox was actor Woody Harrelson. Um, and Oliver Stone said it was because he saw evil in the actor. Now, the actor's father was a convicted hitman who in 1979 murdered a judge. Obviously, when the film came out, there was a huge backlash about the violence. It's a real sensationalistic media that tends to focus on things that don't really matter. Or what risk did Oliver Stone take in casting Willie Harrelson, an actor at the time who was known for comedy and primarily famous for his role on a sitcom Cheers 
And the only films that he did prior to this was another comedy, White Man Can't Jump, and then the drama Indecent Proposal, where he played a side character. What risks is he taking to cast him as a lead in an action film and a serial killer? I remember being young when that happened and watching that movie and walking away having a completely different point of view of Woody Harrelson because I'm so used to him playing the aloof, kind of dumb, very lovable character on Cheers. And then all of a sudden, he's one of the most brutal characters that I, that I ever came in contact with when it came to like books and movies and stuff like that. I mean, he was up there. So, so taking a, a little known actor like that, somebody that the majority of us didn't know Woody Harrelson was capable of at that point, you know, and then even, even the, the amount of range that he showed in white men can't jump was completely different from what he was doing in cheers. And this just takes it a step further. Now, looking back on the whole grand scheme of things, it's almost funny. Like why was it Woody Harrelson getting casted in other, other movies before this? What, what, why did it take Oliver Stone to be the guy that goes, no, this guy's extremely legit. Get him. Yeah. You know, I had to ask him, why would you think of me? I mean, all I've done that you would have seen would be, you know, at that point, I guess, was White Men Can't Jump and Cheers. And uh, he says, uh, I, I see violence in you. I love Woody, but he's a little sick. He's a little crazy. And I think that's what you need for uh, Mickey. You know, I've had a lot of violence in my life, but uh, how could he, you know, I just couldn't understand how he could see that. His father uh, was imprisoned uh, for, for murder as a hitman. There's a reason for Woody to have those genes. <laughs> he comes from a that world and i felt it when the moment i saw him and the role of mallory knox his uh co-partner was a safer bet on oliver stone and he went with actress juliette lewis who portrayed a character in a 1993 film called california with brad pitt that was also based on the charles starkweather murders with juliette i felt something was weird something was off kilter i look at acting as creating and playing, you know, how children play, how they they make up things, and they'll play cowboys and pretend to beat each other up. Nothing could be approached uh, in the conventional way by as, as an actress. I don't think that she liked rehearsing very much. I don't think she likes the, you know, standard approach to uh, film acting. I think that she lives off her instincts. She's like a snake, a coiled snake. Now, one thing Stone did ask Juliette Lewis to do to play the character of Mallory Knox was he wanted her to look like a bodybuilder. He wanted her to be in shape and look as scary as possible. Juliette Lewis refused to do that and said, no, her character is fragile and her strength only comes with the love. So um, she didn't end up doing the bodybuilder thing. And then the media justification will be like, if you didn't want to know about it, we wouldn't run a report. It, and it reminds me of drug dealers. If there wasn't a demand, we wouldn't supply. And it's like, okay, but you, as a human being, what is your moral fiber? What's your sense of integrity? Fuck all that, that you're trying to make a living. Do you really think this is cool? And then Australian journalist and former lead of Tarantino script Wayne Gale was cast with Robert Downey Jr., who was, who was already established as one of the finest actors of his generations, but not a box office star at the time. This is a film about serial killers in the media, and I pay an Australian wacko journalist who's got a TV show called American Maniacs. Anyway, he gets Mickey Knox, Woody Harrelson, and Juliette Lewis plays uh, Mallory Knox, through these crazed serial killers, and he gets him an interview be uh, because he's, they want to, like, you know, take out their brains up in this uh, psychiatric ward, and he goes, that's unconstitutional. 
but what he really wants to do is get a 40 or 50 share for his show because yeah. they're going to put it on right after the Super Bowl. And it's about what happens as uh, Mickey and Mallory take Wayne straight to hell with them in a very interesting way. And it's kind of about demons and uh, it's about You're a lot of stuff. fun with this, just as you describe it. Oh, is, it's it is it a hoot for you? It, yeah, it's great. It's also very difficult because my, my character talks so much that I'll just come in the morning and it's like, so what do I say today? You say these five pages. Roll it. So it's been, reminds me more of when I used to do theater and, or you've just got to get stuff down sure. and be real crack, yeah. you know. And then rounding out the cast in support was Tommy Lee Jones and Tom Sizemore as the cop Jack Scagnetti, who eventually captured the killer couple. So he said, a movie's like a table. Sizemore's like a table, you know. I'm making a five-legged table here, and I got four legs. I know we're good. I can't have a wobbly leg. Are you going to be a wobbly leg? <laughs> you know, because Juliet was at a leg, I guess. Woody was a leg. Tommy Lee and Robert. I would be the fifth leg. <clears throat> I said, no, man, I, I won't fuck the table up. Now, Warner Brothers gave him a budget of $35 million, and he shot the entire film in just 56 days. However, it took him 11 months to edit the film, and it contains over 3,000 cuts. Most feature films contain between 700 and 800. He said, let's just lighten up and go for a summer action movie. That was my initial impulse. This Tarantino script is great. We'll play with this, John. We'll have fun. We'll, we'll do something Arnold Schwarzenegger will be proud of. And then as it developed, it just got deeper and heavier. I don't know what it was. So do you feel he created this film entirely in the editing room? And does that show he didn't have a clear vision when directing the film? I think that's what it shows. I mean, but there was also animation that was going on in the film. So there were so many cuts. I just think that when you are Oliver Stone and you, and again, you, you live in a world where there are so many cuts and there's so many ways that you can evoke emotion that you know the majority of movies just don't contain i don't think you ever have a clear idea what your movie is going to be like until it's in front of you pretty much that i think it speaks for itself I, as i said made these nine movies in eight years uh it's nice to slow down a bit i haven't been on a set since last august we finished shooting it's been a year of editing on this yeah. movie it's a dense movie 25 2500 images 3000 yeah, i mean it's clearly this is a movie that Big was made yeah. In the editing room. And uh, so this is nice to not feel the compulsion to shoot, not to feel the compulsion to do anything, to not do, uh, to re release myself, relax myself from my own demons. That's not to say they're all going to go away. There was a period that... And, but do you know them? I think I can spot them better, yeah. Yeah. Like, what are they? Well, I rather like it too, too much into... My, let's say they're f elements of fear and... Anger, uh, greed, uh, ignorance, uh, what the Buddhists call the six realms. <laughs> They're all, we're all moving through those six realms all the time, but I, I recognize a lot of those things, which I felt before, but I wasn't able to maybe grasp, uh, put my hand. I, I felt when fear comes up, which does regularly in my life, in many of our lives, I, I'm able, I think, to spot it sooner uh, not to, and recognize it and acknowledge it and say, welcome, you know, you're back, my friend. Let's talk. Fear, or, yes. yeah, yeah, yeah. Let's 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 recognize the fear. You know, why am I reacting the way I do? Why do I panic on a situation like this? Why, why do I get upset? Why do I let why the do stress I need to get to me? Why do I need control all the time? Yeah, these 
you know, why do I have to say what I said at that moment? I'm just trying to live in more awareness. But let's break this down. In 1991, he did a film called The Doors that we just talked yes. about. Then JFK was over a three-hour movie that he made. 93, he did Heaven and Earth. 94, he did Natural Born Killers. 95, he released a three-hour biography on Nixon. Now, that amount of work as a filmmaker, and this being a film that he thought would be an easy project, shot it in 56 days, does that show that it was never something that he took completely serious and he just like, let me pump this out and put out an extreme film just for controversial sake? Uh, I definitely think he took it seriously because again, you don't, you don't take that long to cut up a movie and put it out there. You know, I, he had, he had an idea. I think he took it seriously in the editing room. I'm talking about prior. Some of those rehearsals, some of those sets were pretty wild. It was a free rocking show. It was insane. He played, when I got to the set, he played music in between takes. This wild music, African music, all this original music, and he played it loud. This was a nuts shoot, Murins. Every potential uh, affront to sanity and uh, integrity was was committed. Remembered fondly. I was the sanest of the whole group. That's never happened before in the history of my life. It's. Pagan Rome, 26 AD. He's pushing you over onto the script lady and, you know, ah, I Oliver makes, creates a siege mentality. We drink together, we go out together, we eat together, we go to work together, we make this movie together. We're in this together. And um, he's a leader. We worked at a breakneck speed. We shot the whole movie in, I think, 56 days. Other directors could appreciate how much was done in such a short amount of time. I don't think a lot of us slept during that movie. It was sort of a surreal experience. I think prior to the editing and, and again, just sitting behind the camera and, and trying to get all the scenes filmed, I think he had a roundabout idea, mm-hmm. you know, but then again, when you put all those cuts in front of you, it just takes, I, I think it just got out of hand. I think the whole movie got away from him when he got into the editing bay. So I do think that the majority of it was created and especially when all the dialogue is still in the movie, but he had to find new and creative ways to put that in there along with all those cuts, along with all those visuals. If he filmed the dialogue scenes, he has the script in hand. He has the beginning, middle, Yeah, but, but you know how he does, though. But he'll have the dialogue, but then he'll have visuals going on over, over the dialogue. dialogue. Yes. So he has the style, like we were talking about. He has a mosaic portrayal as a filmmaker, Tarantino's script very much a hanging out with people type of thing. And some, I'll tell you the truth, young exhibitors like the film. So, you know, I'm only hoping the exhi- exhibitors are never wrong. You know, yeah. never wrong. They always, they're the last ones to have the picture out there. They can't lose money. They got their popcorn side. So they're never going to take a chance with a picture. Yeah. That's not the reason great are movies get made. A Studios okay. get the pictures made. And I got to say, Warner Bros. back to picture with me to the hilt. And they're spending a lot of money to open it. They're doing the uh, proper advertising. And I think that they're fully behind it. A little nervous? Yeah, because it's a tough picture. Yeah, this is the same, same piece by Bernie Weinrob in the New York Times. We knew this film would be incredibly <coughs> controversial, said one Warner executive. We realized that from the beginning there's obviously a level of concern that it will polarize the audience. It could do that. Are you worried? No. No, I mean, no. What, what, what drama is supposed to be about that. I mean, do we really, you know, I love uh, The Lion King, but we, not every picture's got to be that, you know. You can't, 
you can't make a film that's always popular with everybody. It's, you got to take your shot. You piss off mm. some people. So taking triple the time to edit the film shows that, to me, he's not confident in his film. Or is he just overanalyzing it to a point where it's got to be perfect? What do you think? I think it's he's got to be perfect. I think he has a situation where, you know, they gave him $35 million to do the movie. And again, when they announced that, that was a big deal. That was a big deal. And on top of that, we're talking about him coming off a movie that failed. He's, now he's got to get back out on top. He's got to get out on top. There was no fear. They really didn't operate out of fear like I did in Vietnam. I mean, I had to lose that fear. There was no sense of danger to life. There was no dealing with death. It was, it was, everything was, was there to be had. It was abundant. The world was in abundance. The world was to be loved. The concept of love is a public phenomenon. The mention of love in a public way, be outside of the church. This is the first uh, I heard of it. You know, love, peace, man. You know, the, uh, love and peace. That was the uh, refrain. Uh, the concept was that life was there to be experienced fully. To experience everything. Have no fear. Make no plans. Make no career plans. Test and enjoy the limits of life. And films like Natural Born Killers, just so you guys know, they have been made before. Terrence Malick did a film called Badlands that a lot of people cite back in the 70s, but nothing was released on this level. They were all made on a small scale, and they had limited theatrical runs. But this was the first mainstream major studio release of this nature. Critics misunderstood it. They thought it was over the top. Well, that wasn't the point. Of course it was over the top. You know, you could argue about the degree of of, uh, you know, where satire lies. On August 24th, 1994, Natural Born Killers opened in over 2,000 theaters, and it was critically praised and critically assassinated upon release for its violence and satirical worldview. Walk into a museum and see a Picasso painting, and it disturbs you, and you go out as a result of seeing the painting. You can kill somebody or listen to a Beethoven symphony. Uh, art is considered a product so product liability, mm -hmm. the vacuum cleaner blows up, mm -hmm. which is uh, if you make uh, what we do into a product, we're, we're finished. You couldn't make any movies that were in any way risky. We'd all become a Disney factory. But unfortunately, the Hollywood community was not alert to that, and they was very, we didn't get any support on the movie. So, uh, you know, it's, it was a movie that was really aggressive, and I think... Uh, People, again, were, do not understand it. Is it a win for any filmmaker or artist when the critics respond in an extreme love and an extreme hate to both ends of the spectrum to their and, product? Anytime an extreme emotion is used to describe your movie as a filmmaker, you're winning. It being ahead of its time, us never seeing a movie quite like that. Again, Oliver Stone, he does it different than everybody else. Then, yeah. So the fact that it was so new, the fact that it was so different, I, I believe, I, I think is the reason why it was t attacked. It was lambasted by the critics because it was so new and so by itself. Natural Born Killers has a gonzo brilliance. It plays like an avant-garde essay on the roots of violence. It's an indictment of tabloid media is unprecedented. Uh, also from other reviews that Oliver has brought to my attention. Uh, there is praise for this. I've also seen reviews in Rolling Stone and other who have been uh, hugely critical of it. And then on top of that too, with the message, is it a love story? Is it telling us, 
You don't really know. Is it, a, is it a love story? Is it trying to tell you how bad the media is? Are we all morons that just kind of are, that are just kind of led to led by this North star that is the media, you know, like it, it, there's, there's too much going on. And natural born killers. I think, uh, it's my anarchic, uh, you know, damn the torpedoes kind of all out attitude. Like, you know, we're, we're not going to live with this hypocrisy. We're just going to blow it out at the end of a shotgun. Fuck it. Does the film glorify violence? Absolutely, it glorifies violence. Does the film satirically show the media is at fault for that? Yes. Will that message come across to everyone the same way? No, because I think there are so many people out there that just need their movies. They need their books 100% linear, and they don't want to think. They want, they want the... The, the plot, they want everything just put right in front of face. This is bad, and now good is going to come along and save the day. That's how some people just want their movies. They want it to be, they don't want to think afterwards. They don't want, nobody, when, you, when, you, when you're talking about serial killers, you know, you're thinking, well, the serial killers are the bad guys. But in this movie, Robert Downey Jr. is the bad guy. Yeah, Wayne Gale's the bad guy. Yes. Yeah, the, the, the media. These two kids are desensitized at the beginning of the movie. Totally to their environment, by their parents, by their upbringing, and above all, by television. The demon, of course, starts out as aggression. Mickey describes it as aggression. But it becomes the media in the movie. Before, it was just evil is evil. Mm-hmm. But now, it's like, but look how sens- look what happens when you sensationalize things. And let's face it, back when, when, when Oliver Stone was doing that, you know, you're, you're talking about you're, uh, you know, let's look at look some of the serial killers or people that were responsible. Like, you know, you look at your Charles Mansons and stuff like that. They weren't paraded around like Mickey and Mallory were depicted in this movie. So as long as you have a society to which killers are equated the same status uh, as movie stars or television stars or anything else, you're headed down uh, a nightmarish alley. So a lot of people had a very hard time jumping on board with people go, oh, there's people cheering on serial killers. That's stupid. That's not even possible. What it is, it is. You see it now. You see it all the time in today's day and age. When somebody gets a headline, when somebody captures the attention of a whole nation, you will have diehard fans, no matter what that person did to capture that, to capture that attention. I think we are a culture going to hell. We've been captured by the media. The media has distorted our value system and distorted the argument itself. I'm not saying you know, I believe in mass murder and that shit, but don't no. get us wrong. Yeah, you know, we respect human life and all. But if I was a mass murderer, I'd be Mickey and Mallory. My co-host Brandon Gooch Han on Twitter and Instagram at your buddy Gooch and Jocelyn Sharp on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Jocelyn Sharp. Follow us on Facebook and Twitter at Rise to Offend and on Instagram at Rise to Offend Official. And make sure you listen to us every Monday on the Metal Sucks Podcast on MetalSucks.net. Email us comments, questions, errors we may have made, or any figure you would like us to cover rise to offend at gmail.com.
Com. Discover the film Natural Born Killers. Support the works of filmmaker Oliver Stone and read the original screenplay by Quentin Tarantino, which is available through Grove Press Publishers. Discover interviews on YouTube and purchase the director's cut of the film for exclusive content and audio commentaries. Just a disclaimer, the film is not for the faint at heart. Thank you all so much for the reviews on iTunes. These five-star reviews are helping this show grow and is all we can ask from for you guys. Please, if you listen to the show and appreciate all the hard effort behind it, review the show on iTunes for us. It truly means the world that you take the time to listen and to review the show. Until next week, repeat offenders, RTO podcast, signing off.